This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Hey, good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. Thank you. That's uh, that from Santa Claus himself right there. <laughs> That's pretty good. Hey, for those of you who are brand new to New Life, uh, by now you have figured out that this is the church that no one comes to because they have to. This is a place where we enjoy learning about Jesus, living that out in the most wonderful and creative ways. And I love what Justin said to us this morning. You know, it's more than Frosty the Snowman and Christmas trees and all that stuff. Underneath all of that sort of window dressing, there is the deeper and and the real and the lasting meaning of Christmas. And that's what we're going to press into this morning. If I didn't meet you on the way in and you're brand new, my name is Ron, as Cody just said. Uh, And so I'm going to be teaching us for the next 30 uh, minutes or so out of the Christmas message and The title of this series is An Unexpected Christmas. Before I jump into that, I want to talk to you about the first Sunday of January because we're going to be launching a brand new series of teachings and you may recognize this title. You may have heard it somewhere else. We shamelessly stole it and use it. All right. Are you ready? This is us. Got it? And you know what? We're going to go back to the very founding of our church 20 years ago, and we're going, to, we're going to press into that the very thing that God was doing in and among us 20 years ago, He is doing now, just in a bigger scale. And we're going to take a look at what makes us, us, and what's our unique place in God's work on this earth. And I think you're going to really enjoy it. It's for four sermons, and we're going to talk about some really fun stuff. So having said that, let's press into this idea of an unexpected Christmas. And I want to start by helping us understand what the big idea behind all of these teachings, what that big idea is. And the big idea is that God has invited us to approach him, not based on what we have done, but rather based upon what he has done for us. Now, that, my friends, when Jesus came, was revolutionary. It still is to this day. It's not logical. It doesn't make sense. It's not natural to our human spirit. Every religion in the world teaches and believes that there is a a person or a force or something out there And whatever they choose to believe about that person or that force, they all have a couple of things in common. Number one, they all believe that that person or that force is good. He's completely good. And never makes a mistake. They might not use the word holy. They might not use the word righteous. But they all believe that whatever that person or force is, is completely good. Here's a second thing that all religions in the world teach, and that is you and I are not so good. Not that we don't have good in us. They all teach that we do, but they all teach that we are not all good. 
that there are things about us, they might not call it sin, they might call it something else, but there are things about us that are not as they should be. Now, the big question that every religion in the world wrestles with is, what do we do about that? And until Jesus came, and still in every religion in the world, except for the one that follows Jesus, the basic idea is the way you handle what's not right in your life is you have to fix it. Could be karma and and the cycles of reincarnation until you finally get it right. It, It could be some form of your good deeds have to outweigh your bad deeds. And oh, by the way, if you're past middle age and your deeds have all been pretty bad, that's not a real good message for you because you don't have very much time to make up all that other stuff. In fact, if you're old, there's no hope for you in that message because not a chance in the world that your good deeds will ever outweigh your bad deeds. Jesus came along with this idea and he said, hey, there's a completely different way that God is choosing to handle this. Let me tell you about it. So we're pressing into that. Okay? Now, today's big idea is this. The promise of Christmas is peace. You know that, don't you? Because you sing it all the time. The angel said what? Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Yes. Um, So we're going to press into the idea of peace. How you and I can have peace with God and how that's tied into the Christmas story. Now, we're taking this whole series from the beginning of the first book in the New Testament of the Bible, a book written by a guy by the name of Matthew who had a storied and checkered past and it wasn't very good. He was considered on par with prostitutes and murderers. That's not a real good place to begin. And yet Jesus found him and Jesus invited him to come along on the journey and Matthew's life was revolutionized by Jesus in the best way possible. And Matthew takes pen in hand and he begins to write about the story of Jesus. And Matthew realizes as he writes about the story of Jesus that the actual central message of Christmas is not a baby in a manger, as wonderful as that is. It's not about angels singing from heaven, as wonderful as that is. And we sang about that this morning. It's not about the shepherds. It's not about Joseph. It's not about Mary. It's not about the Magi coming with their gifts. Although we love all that stuff and it's all a part of the story, that's all the window dressing. But the heart of the Christmas story is this. And Jesus said it himself. I came. That's Christmas, right? I came to seek and to save people who are lost. Wow. So as Matthew begins to unfold the story, Matthew realizes, hey, I've got to put some people in here. If everybody in this story of Jesus is all crystal clean and clear and beautiful and wonderful, if these are all the best and brightest that the world has to offer, then when people read my story of Jesus, they're going to miss the point because the point is sinners. Even as the Apostle Paul would, would write later. Listen, 
This is a statement that deserves acceptance across the face of the earth that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So Matthew makes sure that he puts some sinners in the story so that we can see how that works. And so these people are included as part of the story because they are actually the point of the story of Jesus. And here's how Matthew begins his account of the story of Jesus. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. Now, Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience and Matthew is about ready to try to convince his Jewish readers that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah that they have been hoping for and praying for for some 2,000 years. And that's a big task. And Matthew knows this. No Jew in his right mind would ever accept a Messiah that wasn't directly related to David. They all knew that. They all had that figured out. So that's where Matthew begins. The genealogy of Jesus, the son of David. Because David was the person most closely associated with the Messiah, Jesus. And so now I read it to you in its fullness. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. There's one of those unexpected people, okay? And we haven't spent a lot of time on her, but I will tell you this, okay? She was twisted. She seduced her father and on slept with him. Is that twisted? Yeah, that's really twisted, all right? Yeah. We didn't spend a whole sermon on her, although we could, as you could tell, okay? Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. There's another unexpected person in this lineage. First of all, they were both women. Secondly, they were both women with checkered pasts, and this woman is not even a Jew. Tiny hint. Tiny hint. Jesus wasn't full-blooded Jew because as the Christmas story unfolds, we find out Jesus didn't come just for the Jews. He came for for everybody. Okay? This is a woman known as Rahab the prostitute. You can figure the rest of that out. Now, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Here's a third woman included in this story. Now, uh, just in the interest of fairness, the first two women had checkered past. This lady is phenomenal. This lady has more faith than most of us will ever have in our life. She is a loyal person. She is a selfless person. She's a person who's faced immense adversity in life and refuses to be bitter. She is an absolutely amazing woman but she's not a Jew. And yet here she is in the lineage of Jesus. Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of, and for the first time, we get a descriptor, King David. Now, the reason why Matthew would throw in King David is because the Jews all believed that when the Messiah came, the Messiah would actually sit on King David's throne and rule the Jews And the Jews would rule the world. That was the picture they had in mind. So Matthew reminds them, 
of King David. It goes on to say, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Huh. That sounds a little bit like a soap opera, doesn't it? Here's a guy who somehow has a child by a woman who had been somebody else's wife. I think this is interesting. Matthew intentionally surfaces the most embarrassing event in the life of the person most closely associated with Jesus. He would have been a lot better off, I think, for most Jews to say, this was King David who killed Goliath, right? The enemy of the Israelite nation. And God did this amazing thing through him. This is King David who danced in front of the tabernacle of God and led the whole nation of Israel. This is King David, the psalmist of the Bible, who wrote most of the longest book in the Bible. This is King David, the poet. This is King David, the man after God's own heart. But he doesn't say any of that. He said, this is King David, the guy who had a child by another man's wife. Wow. Let me tell you that story. It's not a, it's not a very fun one. but So God sends the prophet Samuel to a little town called Bethlehem that no one had ever paid any attention to. It was just a tiny little burg. And he said to Samuel, I want you to go to Bethlehem. It's time for us to anoint a new king. And I want you to go to the home of a guy by the name of Jesse because I'm going to ask you to anoint one of his sons to be the next king. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem, he goes to, he goes to Jesse's house and said, Hey Jesse, would you bring all your boys in here? And, and, and Jesse has eight sons, but for whatever reason, he brings only seven of them in the room. That might tell you there's a little problem inside that home. What do you think? And Samuel looks at the oldest one, Eliab, and he thinks, This is it. Tall, dark, handsome. Just the kind of guy you would want to be king. And God said, no, that's not him. And then he gets the next guy and the next guy and the next guy and the next guy. And he runs through all seven of Jesse's sons. And every time God says to Samuel, no, that's not the guy. Samuel is legitimately confused now. Right home, right town. And he thinks he's gone through all of Jesse's sons. So Samuel looks at at Jesse and says, dude, are you holding out on me? Do you have any other sons? I do have one. He's out in the pasture with the sheep. Well, you got to bring him in. And he brings him in, and this is David, little David. Been out there with the sheep. And God says to Samuel, that's a guy after my own heart. Get out your horn of oil and pour it over him. He's the next king. And so David becomes king a few years later. And we fast forward in David's life. And he's been king now for many years. He's built a beautiful palace in Jerusalem where he and his family live. And one day he ventures out and he looks and it hits him. Oh my goodness. I live in a beautiful palace 
But God's house, the temple, is just a tent. They called the tabernacle. David goes, I'm going to be a bright man, but that's not right. It's not right for me to live in a palace and God to live in a tent. And so David says, I'm going to build a house for God. I'm going to build God's house. And he takes a big bunch of his of his own personal treasure and he challenges all of the leaders of the nation to, to set aside a portion of, of their resources and, and says, we're going to build a house. And then he gets a message from God and here's the message from God. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. That's good news. Here's even better news. I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. Track with me here. God made that promise to David 3,000 years ago. Do you know any Davids? I think he did it. He may. Do you know any Aminadabs? You know any nations? You know any Perezes? You know, it's interesting. When God makes a promise, he always fulfills it. I don't know if you caught it, but the actual title of this message is Promise Keeper. And we're going to see that's exactly who God is. Now, an interesting thing happens, and I'll, I'm going to read the rest of the story to you in a minute. But... When, when, when David walked outside of his house, it wasn't just that he saw the tent. One day, the Bible says that David was walking on the roof of his palace, and he looked out, and, and, and those people didn't have showers and restrooms in their houses, so they had to take their baths in as discreetly as they could. And he looks over there, and he looks in a yard, and there is a woman bathing herself, and David knows that she is the wife of one of his closest friends. David had one five-star general, and he had three four-star generals of his army. And this was the wife of one of his four-star generals, whose name was Uriah. And David sends a message to this woman who was taking a bath. And he said, why don't you come up to the palace for a conversation? As it turns out, they did more than talk because a little while later, he gets a message from her, I'm pregnant. Now, the problem is her name was Bathsheba. Her husband was actually away at war. So she knows right off the bat, this is David's kid. David is stuck with a big problem. So he says, I know how to solve this. I'm going to send a message and bring Uriah back from the battle lines, and I'm going to send him home to, to take a break and be with his wife, and he'll think that's his kid. Problem solved. So he brings Uriah back from the front lines of the battle, and he says to him, man, you've been working hard. You've been out there on the battlefield for quite a while. Listen, why don't you take a break and go home and spend some time with your wife and enjoy a break, and I'll send you out to the battlefield 
in a little bit. And Uriah says to him, I can't do that. All my men are out there on the battlefield and you want me to go home and sleep in my own bed and eat great food when, when the guys that I'm with are having a tough time. I can't do that. So David says, that didn't work very well. So he thinks, ah, I'll get him drunk. So he invites Uriah for dinner the next night. By the way, Uriah slept in the courtyard on the ground that night. So he invites Uriah for dinner, and, he, and David just keeps pumping the booze, pumping the booze, pumping the booze. And finally, he gets Uriah good and drunk. And he says, hey, man, why don't you go home and sleep this off in your house? in the comfort of your own home. And when you sober up, I'll send you back and and so forth. Here's the interesting thing. Uriah has more character drunk than David has stone sober. He won't go. He goes out and sleeps in the courtyard. So David says, I only got one thing left to do. And he writes a message. He seals it with the king's ring. He says to Uriah, why don't you take this to Joab, who was the five-star general, who was, who was Uriah's boss, I have a message for him. And in that message, he tells Joab, put Uriah and his people right up front and without telling him, retreat and, and, and let things happen the way they will. And sure enough, Uriah takes his men, goes to the wall. Everybody retreats without telling them. Uriah is, is shot and killed and Everything David thinks is good. Yeah. Now let's go back to this promise that God made. God made David an unconditional promise. And the promise was that he would make his name great. Right? He goes on to say this. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And when your days are over, you will rest with your ancestors. And I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. And I will establish his kingdom. And he is the one who will build my house. So David, you're not going to build the house. Your son is going to build the house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son Now look at this. We get a little glimpse into how life works. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men. I won't dig into that too deeply today, but I just want you to know that most often when we sin, there is a natural consequence that comes with that that's not fun. And David is in, and God is saying to David, this is how I work with people and with floggings inflicted by human hands, but my love will never be taken away. Wow. Even when Solomon does wrong, my love will never be taken away. David, even when you do what's wrong, my love will never be taken from you. And just four chapters later, we find the story I just told you where David severely tests God's patience. And so that's the story of David, Uriah, and Bathsheba. But the Bible says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And God had a choice. Am I going to honor that promise that I made to David or am I not? God is the promise keeper. Would he withdraw his love from David? Would he fail to make his name great? Or would he keep his promise 
even when it wasn't fun. And so God made that choice. And 990 years later, Joseph and Mary made their way to Bethlehem. Do you know the other name for Bethlehem? The town of David. How about that? Where Mary gave birth to Jesus. Wow. Let's go straight to the Christmas story because this is where this whole thing unfolds. The angel said to them, this happens to be the shepherds that the angels appeared to after Jesus was born. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for, what's that phrase? All the people. Is that just Jews? No. And there's, boy, this, the story of, of Christmas just oozes with all this wonderful message of this new way that God has invited us to approach him, not based upon what we have done, but based upon what he did for us. The angels go on to say, today in the what? Town of David. That's a promise kept. A Savior. Huh. A Savior has been born. Look at these words. To you. Track with me for a minute. He didn't say, a Savior has been born to Joseph and Mary. No, this Savior was actually born to the whole world. Isn't that amazing? That's the message of Christmas. They go on to say this, that he is the Messiah, the Lord. This is a 1,000-year-old promise that, that has been kept that promise that God would make David's name great and all that kind of stuff, and he would not withdraw his love from him. This, when Jesus was born, that was a thousand years after God made that promise. But God put a brand new promise in that a Savior had been born. And the Bible goes on, suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, and here's the message of Christmas, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, what? Peace on, the, on those on whom his favor rests. I have a confession to make to you. For the vast majority of my life, I believe that phrase, those on whom his favor rested, I believed that that actually spoke of the people who chose to follow Jesus. It's actually not what it means at all. Who are the people on whom the favor rests? Well, the angels already identified it for us. This is good news that will cause great joy for whom? All people. Do you realize that the real message of Christmas is that the favor of God rests on everybody? Because the gift of Jesus is the gift that God gives to everyone. Now the specific promise is peace. And as we close this message, I think it's important for you and for me to understand this. The obstacle of our peace is sin. That's the big challenge. It's the obstacle to our peace. If you don't believe me, sin is what messes up a marriage. 
Sin is what messes up the relationship between parents and children. Sin is what causes a business deal to to get toxic. Sin is what causes regret in our life. And we try all sorts of ways to handle our sin. In fact, some of us, maybe several of us, maybe many of us in this room have tried to drown it with booze. Our conscience gets guilty. The pain is too great. The destruction of our sin, the, the, the path of destruction of sin behind us is so great we can't handle it. So we self-medicate with alcohol or marijuana or who knows. Yeah. Some of us are way above that though. We would never stoop to that level. So you know what we do? We get busy and do as many good things as we can. Yeah. We're going to try to make up for it. You see, the natural response to the peace that we lack is is effort and negotiation. If I give this to this worthy cause, if I do this for this great cause, if I sacrifice this for that, if I quit doing this, if I do this and this and this, if I do all of that, I can offer that to God. And now God, will you give me peace? Will you enable my heart to be at peace? Because I believe I'm somewhere close to getting on the right side of that balance to where my good deeds are outweighing my bad deeds. It's this concept of effort plus negotiation. If I go to church enough, if I say enough prayers, if I do penance often enough, if I go to confession enough, if I go to my small group enough, if I work in a ministry enough, if I give enough money, it's effort plus negotiation. Can I just lay out the truth about life? Here it is. We will never have peace as long as we try to negotiate it with God. I don't care what you put up. We'll never have peace, ever. We may have peace for a moment or two, but it won't be anything lasting. Jesus came along with this amazing question. And here's the question. What if, instead of effort and negotiation, what if we could just be forgiven? How about that? What if the record could just be wiped clean? What if you didn't have to make up for it? What if you didn't have to actually pay for it? What if you and I could actually be forgiven? And that's how we could have peace. Peace with ourselves, peace with God, peace with those around us. The Apostle Paul writes about this, and he says, Through Jesus, God reconciled. The word reconciled means people or persons who were at odds have now been brought to a place of peace. Through Jesus, God reconciled everything to himself. He what? Made peace. You can't make peace. Not like this. Jesus made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes whom? You. 
no qualifications, your peace with God has already been purchased. It's already there. Okay? Who were once far away from God. You were His enemies, separated from Him by your evil thoughts and actions. That's why we said the obstacle to our peace is our sin. He goes on to say, Yet now He has reconciled you to Himself through the death of Christ in His physical body. It's why the cross is such a big thing to the followers of Jesus. It's our constant reminder that our peace is something we receive and not something we earn. He goes on to say, as a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are what? Holy. Wow. Are there days when you and I don't feel so holy? You might not have felt so holy when you came to church this morning. Depend upon what went on in the car on the way here, right? Or what went on in your house after you got out of bed, okay? But you are holy and you are blameless as you stand before him. I love this. Without what? Without a single fault. Now we said a while ago the natural response was, was effort plus negotiation. But the faith response is trust and receive. Does that sound too good to be true? If it doesn't, you're not getting it yet. Okay? And if it does, if it sounds too good to be true, if it goes against every logic that that your mind can put together, well, then that means you're probably beginning to get it. Forgiveness is this free gift that we receive by trusting in Jesus. But here's the thing. The writer of this passage also knew that you and I could get this in clear focus and then we could lose our focus on it and drift back. You have things like that in your life where some days are so very, very, very clear and then the next day it's like, wow, that didn't seem so clear today. I believe that the simple message of Jesus is like that. Because our natural human response is to try to make up for the bad that we've done and hope that that's good enough. I want you to see what he writes next. He says, you stand before him without a single fault, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you have received when you heard the what? Good news. Here's the good news. Because of Jesus, I can have peace with God in spite of me. That is the message of Christmas. And I would say to you this. The same God who kept his promise to David for 3,000 years now is still keeping his promise of peace through Jesus 2,000 years after he made that promise on the day that Jesus was born. Why? Because God is the ultimate and perfect promise keeper. So we're going to close our service by doing something we've never done at New Life. Okay? So for those of you, I have to have that. Thank you. 
for those of you who are Christ followers, we just read a, a thing that says that it's quite likely that you and I would have a tendency to drift from this promise and, and, and to sort of drift back into trying to negotiate with God and make up for our sins. And so we need to be reminded. And so we're going to do a prayer of commitment. We're going to do a prayer of trust. And I'm going to invite those of you who are Jesus followers to actually pray this prayer out loud with me. And for those of you who are not yet Jesus followers, if you want to become a Jesus follower, and this makes sense to you, and you realize, hey, I've celebrated Christmas for years, but I never realized that this is a different deal. This is not me trying to negotiate my way and earn my way into, fa- into God's favor. I'm already in God's favor. I just need to accept it and receive and, and, and put my faith in Jesus. Well, this prayer will work for you. There are some, maybe many in our audience, who are skeptics of that. Maybe not ready to do that. I'm not asking you to pray this prayer. I would never ask you to say something that you don't mean. That wouldn't be good for you, and, and, and that would actually be harmful for you. So if you're a believer, then pray this prayer. If you want to become a believer, pray this prayer, and we will end. I have a couple things, just one thing to say to you afterwards, but by and large, we're going to end our service with a prayer of faith. Are you ready for that? Uh, So I printed it out so you and I can read it together. So here we go. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I believe you're the great promise keeper. As you kept your promise to David, I believe you'll keep your promise to me to forgive me, to accept me, and to love me. I will no longer avoid coming to you because of what I have done or try to negotiate my peace with you. Instead, I will dare to believe you have forgiven me because of what you've done for me through Jesus, my Savior. Amen. Isn't that fun? That is the message of Christmas. So listen, the one thing I have to say to you is this. If you made the decision to begin following Jesus today, we have this packet for you. It's out in the lobby. You can find it on the guest, uh, on the guest services kiosk out there. Please take it with you and read through it. It will not take long, but it will get you started following Jesus in a really, really healthy way. Thank you so much for coming today. Merry, Merry Christmas. And God willing, we will see you next Sunday. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.